And so it comes to this, the final siege of World War film, as Austin valiantly tries to battle back from the hole he dug himself into. This week pits a mediocre film by a great filmmaker against one of the greatest dad movies ever made. It's Britain and Zulu versus France and Fahrenheit 451. That's right, France. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Sewer, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who last weekend met the RZA, which means I have now met every member of the Wu-Tang Clan, except for Old Dirty Bastard, obviously. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, Big Baby Jesus, ODB. Rest in peace, man. And I'm Austin Hayden Smith, and uh, I've never met anybody from Wu-Tang. But I did uh, uh, go on a mission one time to get Mick Jenkins some weed when he was on tour in Dublin. So, I mean, I don't know if that gives me any street credit. Was it, was it a dangerous he, mission? Did was, you have to go I behind to, enemy I had lines? To find a, I had to go behind enemy lines. So all I'm saying is if you're a, a touring hip-hop artist and you come to Dublin, hit me up. You, I'll hook it up you're for a, you. You're a badass, just like Owen Wilson. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so uh, if you are not aware of what the setup for this is, um, this is the last week of our ongoing Versus series. Uh, So uh, at the beginning of the series, Austin and I each started with a list of 20 countries and assigned a film to each. We had restrictions in that there were caps on how many films we could have with high Rotten Tomatoes scores. So we could only have five in the 90 to 100 range, five in the 80 to 89 range, five in the 70 to 79 range, and five that are 69 or below. Uh, we then picked five countries out of a hat, and each episode we pit two countries against each other. So Battle 1, which seems like an age ago now, saw Canada mm-hmm. against China, where the goon beat Rumble in the Bronx. Battle 2 saw New Zealand against Australia, with the Deadlands beating the Rover. Battle 3 saw Italy against North Korea ending in a tie between Red Desert and Joint Security Area. And Battle 4 saw Austin's only victory with Mexico's Nazarene eking out a victory against Poland's The Lore. So currently Austin is trailing by five points. This current score is 175 to 170. Um, mm-hmm. So Austin, what Tyler Perry movies are you going to be watching? <laughs> hey, don't get cocky yet, motherfucker. Um, so, okay. I, 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 be- I believe. So this week, it's the finals with uh, Britain and Zulu versus France and Fahrenheit 451. And yes, Austin did pick France and Fahrenheit 451, which is going to do great for his score on how does this represent the country. So, um, Austin, as you are yes. trailing, I'm going to let you decide which movie goes first. Um, why don't we talk Zulu first? Okay. Josephine Levine presents Zulu. These are the days and nights of fury and honor, of courage and cowardice that an entire century of empire making and filmmaking can never surpass. This is the day when 200 Zulu maidens and 200 Zulu warriors perform their incredible mass wedding dance. This is the day when a woman fights for her honor, among men fighting for their lives. 
going to die! So, Zulu is about the real-life events that took place at the Battle of Rook's Drift in 1879. It depicts 150 British soldiers, many of whom were sick and wounded patients in a field hospital, who successfully held back a force of 4,000 Zulu warriors who were fucking badasses like basically zulus are if you picture like the african version of the spartans that's what zulus are so basically the film kicks off after a british military disaster which i think to this day is still the biggest disaster that a colonial force had against an indigenous army uh where the zulus just massacred a whole bunch of british uh british soldiers um uh were totally overwhelmed by them. The Zulus then set their sights on Rourke's Drift, a mission um, where the Brits have set up a supply station and a hospital for wounded British soldiers. When the Redcoats hear about the impending 4,000 Zulus, Lieutenant John Chard, a military engineer played by Stanley Baker, takes charge, much to the chagrin of a posh, of a posh infantry officer played by Cockney Michael Caine putting on a posh accent. Basically, what follows is the Alamo, with a small contingent of British soldiers trying to hold back a far superior number um, of Zulus, leading to some absolutely incredible sequences, including a point where the Welsh regiment sing Men of Harlech while the Zulus sing back, and one of the best last stand scenes ever. Um, All of it ends... Uh, with a moment where the Zulus salute the bravery of the men and decide not to overwhelm the small force out of respect for them as warriors. This is based off a true story. Eleven Victoria Crosses, among other military awards, were handed out, which I believe is still the most that was ever been awarded in a single battle in British military history. So, Austin, this is this is basically this is like to me this is I think this was my dad's like favorite movie. If it wasn't his favorite movie, it was one of his favorite movies. I have a very distinct memory of watching this movie when I was like 6 or yeah. 7. Um like my dad would just sit through the whole thing and just quote it like pretty much verbatim. <laughs> um and I kind of think of this movie as like one of like the ultimate like dad movies. Um, yeah, I can. Yeah, so, definitely. When you described it that way in the beginning, I a light bulb went on because that is a perfect descriptor. Um, and yeah, and I actually think though um, that this movie could have been a really sort of cheap, shitty '60s film about, about plucky white people beating, you know, managing to survive against the evil savages of a foreign land. But I don't think that's what this movie is at all. Um, did you ever see the prequel? Zulu Dawn? Yes. I actually never watched it. My um, okay. my dad actually really didn't like Zulu Dawn. And for so, I think that's just stuck in my mind and I've never really watched it. Yeah, me either. But I was doing some reading because, you know, anytime you are going to examine a film that deals with colonial forces battling indigenous 
uh, tribes or people groups, the issue of racism or at, at least ethnocentrism is going to come up. So I was reading around to kind of see what people's thoughts were on the issue. And, you know, there was like a Reddit thread and I shouldn't have read it because people on the internet are hateful. Nothing, nothing hateful good ever people. comes from reading a Reddit thread. Gosh, I mean, yeah, no, I shouldn't have done it's like, that. It's but like, I did read it's, it. it's like avoid the YouTube comment section. It's never a good I know. place. I don't know why I know this, but I, it's like the car accident syndrome. You can't help but look, and then yeah. you just go down the rabbit hole. And ugh, Anyway, and, and plus it also makes me feel good that I'm not like a terrible human. So that's like watching reality television. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like why do we watch 16 and Pregnant? So we can be like, I'm better than that person. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a little bit of, I guess, some self-indulgence there. I can be like, I'm not a dumb Reddit commenter, although I am. Um, but anyway – so I read a couple of articles, though, taking opposing positions, and uh, and it was quite interesting, I thought, the, the, the debates, you know. Um, and I think perhaps the most even-handed argument that I heard, which I fully agree with, is the film itself isn't objectively racist. They do a really – they take a lot of care to present the Zulu as um, benevolent, as strong – as as great warriors, as intelligent, as as equal to the charge, but just outgunned. I actually literally. also think there's a really of- fascinating um, element to to which at any point somebody refers to them as savages. There's almost always a secondary character to cut them down and undermine them. Yeah. So there's like a bit where like he says, "What do you know about the Zulus?" And the guy says, "Oh, a bunch of savages, right?" And he goes, "How many miles can you march in a day?" Well, a Zulu can run yeah. that and then fight a battle at the end of it. Like he's like, right. you know, I and the fact that the film also involves the Zulus, like here, here's the interesting thing. I, I, I also think that people miss sometimes about the context of this film. This film was made in 1964. Civil Rights Act hadn't been signed. It's filming in South Africa, which at that time was still under apartheid, like heavily in right. apartheid. Like this is not this is not coming out at a time where there's any expectation of having any kind of benevolence towards, you know, uh, you know black people. It You know, the generally people would think of Zulus as you know, or African tribesmen, the popular conception would be that they were savages. And I actually think the effort that this film goes to, to not only have, to not only involve the actual Zulus, um, but to even like, for instance, like the chief of the Zulus is played by an actual Zulu tribal leader. Um, you know, the film didn't have to do that. And they, they did it because I think of what the themes that the film is interested in, which is this idea of this sort of honor among warriors and this sort of grander idea of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I actually, I read an interview with that chief Mm -hmm. and he said that the amazing thing was is that the producers and the film crew were actually appalled with how white South Africans treated black South Africans during filming because it was filmed on location in South Africa and that this guy was saying, I can't remember his name, but he was saying that we were treated on set relatively like equals. He said that they didn't get a, a shitload of pay. Like he didn't get stars pay. He said, but he was only on set for a couple weeks. And, um, and you know, they, I guess there was a rumor that apparently that all the Zulu people got paid in cattle. Well, that's, yeah, not that's true. not true. They that's, actually, that's a lie. <laughs> that's not true at all. They actually got paid money. And he was saying that, you know, that they actually were treated, uh, quite well compared to, you know, the, the standard way that a black South African would have been in the mid sixties. So, you know, obviously, and, and I like what you said too, about how every time a character does mention 
the Zulu people in a denigrating way that there is always a secondary character that corrects them or that presents a different side. And one of my favorite pieces actually at the end, and, and I think for me the end of the film is really where the film shines. The end is beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's touching. It's very emotional. Um, and one of the things is even Michael Caine's character at the end, he the, the Zulus have been fought off and the, the British soldiers, they think they've kind of won and they've defended themselves. Not they've won. They didn't win. They survived. What, but that's, that, that's what I like. I like the, fact, and point, so, the point and, well, of this and movie so, is survival is victory. Right, right. And so and so they the, the Zulu go off and uh, they think they're that they've gone for good this time because they've done this a couple of times where they've retreated and they've come back. And then fucking a thousand of them line up on this hill. And they start singing this song again, and Michael Caine starts to kind of yell at them, and he's like, "Ah, oh, they're taunting us." What are you waiting for? And the other for? guy says, "Yeah, what are you waiting for?" And then he says, "Ah, oh, they're they're taunting us," you know. And the other guy, I can't remember what his name was, but he comes up and he says, "No," he's like, "You couldn't be more wrong. They're saluting you," which actually almost makes it seem like even to the end, the Zulu were still better people. They had more moral fiber because even Caine at that point didn't understand. That there was a camaraderie, that there was a respect. He actually viewed them as less than they were, and what happened was, is by his low expectation of them, thinking that they were taunting him, he actually underestimates how ethical they are and how kind of um, how benevolent they truly are as a people. Coming back to salute, and then there's a mutual respect. But it's lovely because the mutual respect is led by the Zulus being the ones saluting these people for this battle that they've just engaged in. So in that sense, it's very interesting. Now. Now, here's the criticism. That is obviously a very ethnocentric and British way of saying, like, oh, the Zulu, they, they respected us in this battle. Now, whether or not that there is some sort of, like, a tribal respect that may have been paid within Zulu culture, I don't know. I know that, obviously, it's a film, and they're going to take a lot of leniency with regards to historical accuracy. But I, I, I will are... go ahead and say that that didn't happen. Like, the Zulu <laughs> okay. basically yeah. retreated because... Well, they for two supplies, reasons. Right? One, there was British reinforcements that came in, but also actually the Zulus weren't technically supposed to be attacking Rourke's Drift. Um, so it was kind of like they weren't actually under orders to do that. So they then kind of left because like it was actually <laughs> right. not what they were supposed to be doing anyway. Because like, yeah, there was like a rift in the tribe, right? Like one of the because it wasn't actually on their land. It was outside of Zulu. Land. I think it was on the border. So, I think that. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the guys that was in charge was like, "No, let's not." Well, the actual and then, like, chief the young had kind not of approved the um, had not approved. So at the beginning, there's the bit where the chief sort of hears about the great victory, then tells the men yeah. to go off to to you know sort of gives uh, gives the go ahead to go um, attack Rourke's drift. That that didn't actually happen in real life. It was actually. Um, the prince who I can't remember, I think he was like trying to prove something or wanted to make a point with Rourke's drift. Okay. But um, so but at that point, I think the idea had been that they were just going to overwhelm Rourke's drift. But when it like after two days, it was like proving a problem, I think. Yeah, and then the reinforcements showed up. He was just like, fuck this. And so they decided to go back. Right. Yeah. So they were, I mean, they were an so incredible I military force the zulus i mean right. when he's talking about the um the military strategy of like the head of the buffalo like the bull um, right or, or the, the buffalo, bull yeah. sorry the bull um and how it yeah, sort of yeah. has the it sort of comes i mean they were inc an incredible dominant military force they were really tactically very intelligent they were just outgunned yeah. I'm, I'm reading this amazing book right now it's called guns germs and steel 
by um, the. But you, uh, I mean, you say they were outgunned. A biologist but the named thing Jared is, Dunn. in the previous battle, um, which I've forgotten the name of, uh, they had been. Oh, is as I send. Isandawana, the Battle of Isandawana, uh, basically that, they actually, the, there were far more British soldiers there, um, and the Zulus overwhelmed them, and part of the reason that they managed to do that was because they caught the British in open land, as opposed to the British being able to um, hold up in this sort of small military point, but at the same time, you know, at the end of the film... If the Zulu, I mean that—that's what's really beautiful about the end of the film is this idea that the Zulus could just come in and finish them off, but they don't. Right. And that's not actually yeah. historically relevant. That's not actually historically true. But I—I I, I don't mind because I actually I really like the themes that that gives the film. Yeah, I mean it's it's again it's trying to show you the quote unquote savages as they would have been viewed in a way that was more human than the savage title would allow. And so in that sense, there is something interesting politically or socially that the film is trying to do. But of course, it does come from a sort of post-colonial or colonial at that point even perspective where it was like, oh, you know, they respected what we did. And then, of course, it doesn't even mention the fact that the only reason that the Anglo-Zulu war was going on in the first place was because of... Uh, sort of imperial the, the invasion. The British wanted diamonds. That British. was basically why, yeah. why it was going on. Right. I, I, and so I, it doesn't, and I understand So it doesn't deal that. with that. So, and that's okay. And, and that's and okay. I, I, that's I, okay. See, I understand so people's criticism I, yeah. on that, but my feeling is generally not all stories are about everything. So it's kind of like... Right. And, exactly. And the simple fact is the most of the men who were there were not there because they were like, oh, I really want to get diamonds, so I've decided to invade this place. They were there because... That was their job. Their job was yeah. they were soldiers in the British Army, and that's what they that's that's what they were ordered to go do at that point. Now you can you can get into the ins and outs of whether that of of the the how ethical it is to sort of follow orders and everything. But you know these these guys didn't know anything about Africa. They didn't know anything about kind of like how you know, the what was what was really going on. They all they had been in they were. They were stationed there, and this was their job, and they had to survive when this force came in to try and kill them. You know, I mean, yeah. and I, and I, you know, it, it, it when a four thousand Zulus are attacking you, you're not really going to sit there and um, debate the merits of why you're there or not. Yeah, at that point, I mean, and it's strange because I think we need to hold the tension because in my mind there is no. It, Contradictions don't frighten me. Contradictions just problematize things. So what I see here is is a problematized sort of paradox. People can both be complicit in their involvement with an invading colonial or imperial oppressor. And at the same time, there's also a way that we can understand contextually if you were in that situation or where they were coming from based on limited information, based on their upbringing. So it's not a justification. It doesn't excuse and say that, oh, it's okay in a moral sense, but it's it's a recognition from an analytical perspective of how things were the way they were and why they were. Well, the and, way I, were. and I think and I think that's okay to approach and if you want to take from it, that perspective. And if you want to broaden that ethical, you know, dilemma out, you could also point out that the Zulus were an incredibly dominant war force that killed off a lot of you know, sort of local tribes within South Africa and, you know, held sway, held great military power over the area. It just so happens that a more powerful colonial power came in to disrupt that. It's it's sort of like, right. it, it, it's again, this idea of balance and that everything has this kind of nice, uh, 
and uh, you know w- was was this nice cohesive environment until colonialism came in is a kind of bastardization of history to a certain extent i mean history is about war and death and blood in every which part of the world it just depends on whoever the most powerful force coming in at any point is generally yeah, and that's what I was going to say earlier. I'm reading this book. It's called Gun Ger- Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And one of the things that he analyzes it, it was a Pulitzer Prize winner, I think, in like 99 or something like that, maybe early 2000s. Um, and anyway, one of the things he does is he analyzes global history from the perspective of uh, sort of happenstance. So why is it that the Industrial Revolution took place in Europe as opposed to in New Zealand, right? And he spent his the majority of his life, he's also an anthropologist, so he spent the majority of his life doing research in Papua New Guinea. And one of the things he looks at is why didn't they develop their commodities in the same way that uh, that kind of, or their cargo, I think is what they call it, in the same way that they would have in Europe. And a lot of it had to do with just happenstance because we got fucking steel yeah. in Europe. And so it then kind of disseminated from there. So the reason that the British Empire was able to go in and fucking dominate with 150 people uh, against 4,000 Zulu was because they had a building. They were able to hunker down in that. They had uh, shitloads of bullets and, and firepower. So a lot of it was circumstantial that allowed them to win. Um, so that, that's something that's kind of – that needs to be considered. All of this aside, all of this kind of like contextual um, – cultural and historical controversy that maybe the film stirs up as a piece of filmmaking this is a brilliant film. it's I, it re- it really well, is. i mean it's okay i mean the, the thing that immediately sort of calls to that that you immediately sort of get absorbed in is the scope of this film for one i mean it has these sort of grand epic vistas and really just uses yeah. the landscape in this huge way like you get this real sense of the environment. And I mean, you use it reminds me of the searchers yeah, no. in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, and interestingly enough, Cy Enfield, when he was trying to explain to the Zulus, um, what, you know, the, the idea behind screen acting, because a lot of them didn't really know much about film, hadn't really sort of seen many movies. Um, he used Westerns as a way of explaining what it was that they were trying to do, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's honestly, it, it's shot a lot like, yeah. Western. And I mean, it, it really and Cyan Field is an American, which is, uh, which is an interesting fact too, because, um, basically Michael Caine said if it had been a British director, he never would have been cast because a British director would have never considered him capable of playing an upperclassman because he was a Cockney, <laughs> uh, which is right. of course, cause you think of Michael Caine so synonymously with this idea of being this working class sort of cockney guy. It seems mm-hmm. so peculiar watching him play like a toff. Yeah. I mean, I he's, he's good I, in it. Like, I'm not like, I'm not dissing is. Michael Caine at all. I, I, I like Michael Caine as much as the next person, but it, it is quite, it doesn't seem like a very Michael Caine role. Yeah, it is kind of jarring at first. I know. And you know who else is in it is uh, your, our homeboy from Wake and Fright oh, yeah. has a small part in it. What's Gary his name? Bond. John... Gary Bond. Gary Bond. Gary Bond. Yeah, yeah. He's in it for a minute until he gets shot and killed. Yeah. No, and it's yeah. it's interesting too because the thing that I I actually think is really great about this film um, is how it really takes the time to build tension over the first hour. Like it really sets up the concept of the Zulus, the stakes, the 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 power they are they have as a military force, and then also just how hapless the British 
military situation is and the fact that they have mm. so few men and so many of those men are sick and injured. And even then, you know, you have characters like Hook, who is just this guy who has who was basically had the option of either joining the military or going to prison. And so has joined the military and basically uses every excuse he can to try and get out of work and is always pretending to be sick. Um, and I mean, and I, I love the way that in the first hour is just really about establishing everything. It's about establishing who right. these different men are, what their dynamics are with each other, what their relationships are, and also building this slow dreading tension of this inevitable, this inevitability that, you know, the Zulus are going to show up. And when mm. they know the Zulus are going to show up, you start to really see in the performances and the dialogue, everything is just building this, um, this, this tension almost to this combustible level. So when mm. they actually first show up, you're like, holy shit, this some shit is about to go down. Yeah, and they show up about like halfway through a two hour and 20 minute yeah. film. So it's like an hour of battle. Oh, yeah. You know, like almost is it? It's got to be an I think hour. So yeah, right? I think it's about halfway. So I think it's about half of the film is the build up, and half the film is the battle. And yeah, so it is. It is. Yeah, the way they do that. Now, I did think that the beginning for me was a little slow, mm. and and I I get the build up thing, but I kind of thought that they belabored the point a little bit by trying to show the soldiers just doing their daily thing. They they lingered on that for me just a little much. They do get a lot of good. So, mati- they get a lot of like mileage out of you know sort of the Welsh being goofy, right? <laughs> yeah, all the Georges. Yeah, exactly. Oh god, I, I you know, but I would say this has a really really like sharp, really funny script. Like there's a lot of just great witty remarks in it. Like the one I always the one I always love is when Stanley Baker says uh, the British Army doesn't like two having two massacres in one day. And then Michael Caine just goes, <laughs> looks very bad in the paper and upsets the civilians at their yeah. breakfast. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um God, I'm trying to think. So yeah, I think the beginning of the film for me, yes, it does build. I think it belabors the point by about 20 minutes too much um you probably could have cut that almost in half and then the second half of the film is where it really picks up for me and it's not just because i i'm I'm like ah action i want to see it but i think a lot of interesting stuff comes out of the action sequences you know you get to see people's moral fiber and, and character a little bit more uh during those sequences and in particular, it's the last 20 minutes that I thought were absolutely outstanding. The the bit that you're talking about, when the Zulu come up and they start singing their song. Now, I guess one of the things that's interesting, too, in, in the interview that I read by the, the chief gentleman, he was saying that his mom was actually a teacher, mm-hmm. and she was brought on set. So this is, what, 64? So yeah. she was brought on set. So then she was probably in her 40s. So she's, like, you know, living in, like, the yeah, 20s, yeah. probably. And so she was brought on set to actually teach the Zulu tribes like old, old songs like they would have actually yeah, yeah. been singing in the late 1800s. And, um, and, um, oh, hold on one second. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I guess the production and producers and things like that, 
they didn't like the old original songs. They wanted the more contemporary yeah, Zulu yeah, yeah. songs. So they're, they're actually singing Zulu songs, yeah. but they're singing Zulu songs from the 60s rather than the 1870s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, so, and the guy said that he actually, the chief guy, he said he wasn't upset about anything really in the film except for that because he was like, my mom came down. <laughs> my mom she, came down. I know, I know. And she, off, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he was like disappointed about that. But, um, but they, that sequence where they're singing that, um, it's fucking powerful. Oh, it, just, it gives you know? me and chills then, every time And then I what's watch the song it? called? Uh, Men of Harlick. What's the other one called? Yeah, and so then the, the Brits are singing Men of Harlick in response. And the juxtaposition between these beautiful, cultural, fraternal songs in the midst of battle and then, of course, looking back on it and thinking about the sort of capstone idea of mutual respect and mutual bravery and, and kind of saluting each other. Yeah, it, it's got a lot of emotion in there. And then, of course, the trumpets go and all hell breaks but, loose and they start fucking but killing But again, each other. it's one of these things of why I think that this film survives and is still, like, considered a classic. And even, I think, has survived into the modern age, post the Civil Rights Act, post-apartheid, post- because you watch it and really, to me, what the film is always saying is these are two types of men but of the same cloth these are these are two cultures but these are both men of the same profession the same uh the same code of conduct the same honor it's just that they come mm. they happen to be on two sides of a divide and i think you know yeah. i and i think the fact to which is which is not an uncommon theme within war films but i think right. for a film that is dealing with um, native peoples of uh, a different race it was incredibly revolutionary for something in the 60s for in the early 60s yeah. for them to be doing and and to me that's where the film really really soars because I, again i think this could have been so easy for this to have just been some trite film about sort of the horrors of the of the evil black men who can who who are right. who you know have kind of supernatural abilities but i don't think that's what this film is i think the level to which it makes an effort to pay respect to the zulus as uh you know because i mean it, it never, to me, even suggests that the Zulus are unjustified in the fact that they're attacking the British. You know, the British no. are obviously the people we sympathize with, but I don't feel like the film's the film is pro-colonialism. And the fact that none of the characters ever seem particularly keen on the idea of even being there or have any real cause to sort of, like, support the British Empire. And in fact, a lot of the characters, I mean, you have characters like Hook, obviously, who's his job, he, he's just there because because he has to be. Stanley Baker is an engineer. He doesn't want to like mm. he, his interest is in building a bridge. You know, Michael Caine's right. there. He says he says that at one point. He's like, I, I'm here to build yeah. a bridge. <laughs> Michael Caine. I mean, he is he is in charge literally because he was conscripted. What like a month before Michael Caine was? It's like yeah. he he received his whatever. I I don't know military terms, but he he received his like official enlistment or, rank whatever, or whatever rank or whatever yeah. like who knows um, yeah. so he technically outranks like michael Caine by like a month and then michael Caine is just there because it's his family business like you know right. and and again it's like that point where he's talking about you know my father was at waterloo you know my uh mm. my you know and he, he's talking about his family history and you get the feeling that this isn't 
this is this is something that he was just born into that he never he's never had right. any passion for it or desire for it but there's this pressure on him to live up to this ideal and then at the end when michael Caine's, you know the, when they win i mean I, don't, I guess you could say to the extent that you did they do win it's not a it's not a moment of great joy and power. It's like you see that bit where like they have that kind of last stand where they're in the the volley rows, which is of course the the great sort of British um, military tactic that was one of the things that allowed them to be a, a very strong um, military force, um, which was the sort of shooting in lines. Um, so it meant that All they right. could have keep up a constant barrage. I mean, they you get the feeling at the end that they've barely survived this, and you know. They're not excited and pleased, and it's this great cathartic moment of victory. It's this feeling of, fuck, we just got through that. And then when they finally, yeah. and when they finally, well, the one guy, the one guy even says that, right? Uh, something like Michael Caine's talking with them and like uh, talking about going into like another battle, yeah. and this is the first time or yeah. something like that. And the, the guy says, "Do you think I? Do you think I could stand this butcher's this? yard more than once? You know, because he, yeah. he's basically Michael Caine saying he he says he feels ashamed." And Stanley right. Baker, and he, he asks, "Was that true for you the first time?" And Stanley Baker says, "Do you think I could stand this butcher's yard more than once?" And it's that moment where Michael Caine realizes that also, like Stanley, because ba- he's seen this Stanley Baker's the time. more experienced officer, but he's. Yeah this entire time just been just as kind of inexperienced as, as Michael Caine. And it's, it's this moment of it's two very human characters. These aren't grand heroes that have overcome this great thing. They're two men who've barely survived this kind of this, this, this horrible violence. And it's, you know, and that, that's what's interesting about this film is that again, you know, you yeah. put the mantra of dad movie on this, and you can you can you can look <laughs> at it from the idea of it's a movie about cathartic violence, and this movie isn't about cathartic violence to me; it's about survival. Yeah, you know, it's weird. So two films popped into my head, and it's because I recently have seen them. But two films were resonating with me. If we're going to talk about like intertextuality, yeah. as I was watching this, one was Dunkirk. Yeah. Because of the idea of the No, I think that's a very obvious parallel. Yeah. Yeah. And then two was Captain Phillips. And the reason was because Captain Phillips does, I think, a brilliant job of showing the quote-unquote bad guys as being extremely sympathetic. Like more than sympathetic. Like you almost are like, God, you want him to get some money at the end almost or or something. You want him to at least get back to Somalia and like, fuck, like they're backed into a corner, you know? So – there's something about that, that you have these two sides, that one side is supposed to be good, one side is supposed to be bad. It also just so happens that one side is white and one side is African, one side is black. Um, and uh, and at the same time that you you kind of are with both sides. I think Captain Phillips obviously is more intentional at fleshing out the characters yeah. on the African side. Well, I mean, side. certainly the thing but, that you But could, that's just you, because it's a different film. And I mean, the thing you could certainly point out about Zulu is the fact that it is still a movie that is very much centered around the British perspective. You know, of course. You, you have this opening with the Zulu, but even still, it's very much seen through the eyes of this um, drunk Swedish priest and his daughter, right. rather than um, through... You know, we're we're never kind of given the Zulus without a white perspective in some way. Right. But again, well, it's now, a movie from 1964. Yeah. It's kind of like th- there's that point right. where I kind of say like, you can't just attribute modern values to old films all the time. And I don't think this film deserves to be given shit for that. 
Right. Well, it, and I and I do think that like I'm okay with giving it shit just in so far as you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. If you say, "Hey, yeah, of course there are some colonial um subtexts, issues here that that obviously maybe uh, aren't the greatest, but that's okay. That doesn't that doesn't mean that it's an evil film that needs to be burned, which we can talk about when we're talking about four, Fahrenheit 451 that needs to be discarded because I actually think it's a much more nuanced film. And one of the things I wanted to say is that we haven't talked about it yet is that priest. Yeah. The theme of glorifying violence and glorifying the British army is actually really quieted by this constant criticism and appeal to um, Christianity mm. and to the appeal to thou shalt not kill. And the priest is constantly saying you're going to bring the sin of Cain upon mm-hmm. you, which is the sin of murder, right? That's the yeah. first time that death enters in the myth of, uh, uh, of Judaism and of Christianity. And so there's this constant criticism of death. Like don't fight the Zulus. Don't fight them because you're just going to bring – calamity upon yourself because you're going to offend God or nature or the universe or whatever and obviously they're being specific about Christianity in this um, because it's 1870s Britain so they're straight up Anglican probably Um, but I think that kind of tempers the the colonial uh, pride, the colonial spirit um, that that tempers it from being over celebratory about the violence and that you actually really do get a sober reminder of the sort of grotesque nature of war as well, and I think that's important to to remember as well, because that theme is constant throughout. I mean, to the point where when they fucking throw him in the brig or wherever they throw him, he's still yeah. screaming at at Gary Bond at one point. You know, he's screaming at the people like you don't realize what you're getting into, and you don't want to violate this law. But by the way, I I actually um the uh, the um the the guy the the chief who plays um King uh, Ketsuwayo, the the Zulu, mm-hmm. he's actually playing his real life great grandfather. So he's actually the yeah, great grandson right. of the. Uh, oh, that's uh, cool. Uh, so you know, which is which is kind of a cool fact, but yeah. I mean, I actually think again, I actually think where this film really flies to me, and I know you said the first half is kind of slow, but I think because it establishes all these dynamics between these characters, so you have the priest, you have, I, I think uh, for me, I'm I'm a great fan of the um, of the sergeant. Uh, Frank Bourne, the, the sort of the guy who at the end is doing all of the um, the names, who's reading out the names and trying to figure out who's dead. Uh, yeah. And I think he sort of embodies this, uh, the, the sort of the traditional idea of the British military man, the sort of stiff upper lip kind of thing, <laughs> which I right. think allows for some really great humor within the film as well. And I, mm. so one of the things that I also love, like I said, I, I love about this film is that it, in this sort of, big dire situation it's still able to ream a lot of great humor out of you know and i Mm. just the bit at the end too where he's reading off the names and you're finding out who's and he's there he's making a mark of who's dead and who's alive and they just have you know Mm. he'll just have these the moment like like he's reading a name he's like you're not dead. I saw you. You're there. And he goes, "Oh, am I? Oh, well, thank you very much, sir." <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's again. There's just something so incredibly British about that, which I don't quite know how to quantify. But it's it's just the, yeah. the dryness of it is just so perfectly delivered that you kind of can't believe that an American directed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really is a pretty stellar film. I'd never seen it before. And and maybe the slow buildup was necessary to have the cathartic payoff that you get in the second half. 
Um, I don't know. And I know a lot of times, too, with, like, these large epics, it does take time to to set things up, to build things. They like to take their time with things. And so in that tradition of, you know, like, war epics, yeah. it's, you know, about standard length. It's two hours and 20 minutes. Which so actually it's not, is... It's not insufferably long. It's, it's actually yeah. kind of short, too, for, like, a film. Because there are plenty of films that would have dragged this out to three hours, three and a half hours. They could have, you know? yeah. Um interesting well i i kind of i always kind of look at it as the first hour is almost the first half is almost all set up like it's setting up everybody it's setting up all the relationship dynamics and it means like the second half is almost all payoff you know and it's yeah and i and i think that works and you know and i love i love the sort of the voiceover by richard burton at the end kind of just explaining you know who all the guys were who got the victoria crosses and I don't know, it just, it's one of those movies that, that it, it gets me emotional at the end of it. And I get very, hmm. I just get so wrapped up in it. And again, just like that point where, yeah, I, I just think that point where they, the, the, the Welsh regiment sings uh, Men of Harlech to, you know, and the Zulus sing back and the, at leading up to that kind of last stand gun battle and on through kind of, uh, to the end where they salute their honor. It's just, it's one of the most just brilliant, just 20, 30 minutes of cinema. It's just, it's so, mm. it's, it's just, uh, it, it's just so wonderful. I, I just, I, I adore this film. Yeah. And see, the thing that's interesting is I've read that the film was actually more successful in America than it was in the UK. Well, it's actually funny because my, my dad told me that he saw this. Um, I think he took my uncle to it or something like this. Cause I think my dad would have been, Oh, I don't know. He would have been about nine or ten. No, maybe he didn't. I don't know. It was about nine or ten, I think, when it came out. But he said that he went to it and then basically they watched it once. And then because like in that day you paid a you paid a a set fee and then you went in and then you could sit as long as you wanted. They they, they waited and then they watched it a second time, like right (laughs) afterwards. And this was in Texas. This was in Texas. This was in Lubbock, Texas. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is interesting to me because I feel like maybe this is why my father dubs. was obsessed with Britain and ended up marrying a Scottish lady. <laughs> yeah, Britain and westerns. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, yeah, it's just interesting because, like the film Dunkirk, it's one of those events that historically I don't know much about. I don't know much about the Anglo-Zulu War except in passing when you get notes in academic texts learning about like global history or global economic history it's or not colonialism, an area we deal you know? with a lot in cinema i think partially because it's very hard to come out with a sympathetic view of the white people in it you know right. because obviously it's you know, i mean and that's the thing is again where making films in america you know in britain generally from the perspective of our own our, you know, our, our own worldview. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I remember um, reading that in Master and Commander, in the book it's based off of the naval ship they're fighting is actually an American ship. But, of course, because mm. it was being produced by an American studio, they're like, well, you can't have the Americans be the bad guys. So, <laughs> like, audiences are going to feel weird about it. So, like, so they, they changed it to a French ship in the movie. And Master and Commander is still a fucking great movie. So this is not me criticizing Master and Commander at all because I fucking yeah, yeah. love that film. But... And you love you love you some Peter I love Weir, me don't some you? Peter Weir, man. Um, but <laughs> but like but no, and I mean like it, it's hard to really come out of anything like the Boer War, anything that happened in South Africa, you know, in terms of British yeah. colonialism, and go, hey, yeah, no, we we're, we're really supporting the guys in the red coats there. 
Um, actually, yeah. there's a really I mean, great Australian like if- movie called Breaker Morant, which is about um, the um, which is uh, set during the Boer War. But that's one of the only ones that I know of. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I feel like if you tried to make this film now, uh, it would run into oh god, so many I- issues, all kinds of issues. But what would be interesting is much like the film Deadlands that we saw, yeah. that was a, a very it was an indigenous take on uh, a sort of culture that hasn't really had a voice in the filmic yeah. industry uh, or in the filmic community. It'd be interesting to see a Zulu film. Oh, a Zulu filmmaker. film would be really fascinating. I'd be right yeah. from the perspective talking about the the Anglo-Zulu war but done from the Zulu voice. Yeah. I would love to oh, see yeah, that no, because that would be really interesting. Well, the difficulty um, is too yeah. that the problem is that where would the the domestic film industry that would have to do that is really the South African one. And right. South Africa has South Africa does not have the strongest film industry to begin with and then sure. also has many of its own problems in terms of uh its own racial past and you know I mean it, it you right. know it in fact you know in South Africa in many ways it makes America look <laughs> look easier by comparison I know so Jesus. I mean it's like it's, it, they're one of the few countries that make us look good when it comes to treatment of black people I know there's I only know of one South African filmmaker really uh Neil what is it Neil Blanc- uh, Gavin Pop, Hood is. is another one he won best foreign language director for Tootsie and then he went on to make uh uh, uh X-Men Origins Wolverine uh which was obviously a disaster <laughs> but he um he also made uh he made a film that came out uh I think last year called Eye in the Sky with Helen Mirren that okay. was uh decent uh, he also made okay. Ender's Game which wasn't that great oh yes um, yeah. so I mean yeah so yeah. yeah it'd be interesting though I-, I would like to see something like that because I do think that the, in the next you know, 10, 20 years, we're probably going to start to see more of this type of thing. You know, the post-colonial voices that have been educated in uh, in film theory or something like that that are going to come out and they're going to start to say, hey, now it's our turn to make our well, story. Well, we have seen some of this in Australia. We have seen some of this in New Zealand. Um, so I think it would be really interesting to see it, um, see more African um, sort of films come well, out. Well, you know, have you ever watched any of Nollywood films? No, I've never watched it. You know what I'm talking about, right? I, I vaguely know what you're talking about, it's, but do you want to tell so, people? So, like, so in the world, obviously, there's Hollywood, and then in India, there's Bollywood, and then, of course, you know, China's actually probably got, like, a bigger film industry even than, than India, but just in terms of uh, consumption more than anything. But, uh, actually, people don't know this, but Nigeria has a pretty ripe film industry and they call it nollywood now i have only ever seen little bits of nollywood stuff and it's obviously not up to the same level of of technical proficiency as uh the hollywood films or even like let's say independent cinema or 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 world european cinema or world cinema world european or european cinema or world cinema in like bollywood or even in china but Hey man, you're 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 getting some uh, some some actual domestic voices on the continent of Africa. So maybe if Nollywood could spread to South Africa, and we could have Hollywood or something. I don't know what it would be. Uh, South African Hollywood. Well, Johannesburg, Jollywood. Ah, oh, that's it. We need Jollywood. <laughs> um. Well, like okay. So um, there is kind of. I, I, I've, I've heard of this film. I've never actually seen it. I've, I've only kind of seen it through <laughs> YouTube videos. But there's a film that's kind of becoming a little bit infamous that's called 
who killed Captain Alex, which is a Ugandan action movie, which basically yeah. basically looks like it's filmed on a DV camera with a bunch of people who are your friends, and it's like and it's it's like clearly <laughs> guys who just they they've they really like movies and they've bought like their own, I love and it. it's it's basically kind of like Africa's answer to the room. But the thing that's <laughs> fascinating about this, apparently, this is a real this is this is true in in Africa a lot is. That it's really hard to get a version that doesn't have a guy commentating over the whole thing. Like, and he just goes, what? and he, and so you'll be watching it and he'll just be like, Captain Alex is super fantastic, uh, action man. <laughs> pow! Yeah, it's like, it is like, it's an action yeah. film. I'll be like, pow, that is some good action there, you know? And, and, oh, Jesus. Here, here's my only concern then is we're going to have all of these domestic film industries that are going to pop up, but they're going to try to emulate Hollywood so much that they're going to be doing like 80s styles or like 90s style action films in 2020. <laughs> like apparently, did you know, apparently the, I, I don't know if it's the highest grossing or the second highest grossing or something, but it's one of the highest grossing films in China is a movie that stars Frank Grillo. Is it The Wheelman? <laughs> uh, it's a sequel. It's a sequel. There was a film before it called like it's not the Wheelman. It was called like something super actiony. If you're on if you're on Google right now, Google it real quick. It stars Frank Grillo, and it's a sequel to a Chinese action film. And he actually he's like the the secondary star character, but apparently he's actually the most famous American actor Is it in China right Wolf now. Warriors two. Yeah, that's Oh my the god. I mean, don't get me wrong. Look how much bro, look look how much money it's made. It's made a billion dollars. I mean, don't dollars. get me wrong. I fucking love me some Frank Grillo. So I'm like I'm happy for <laughs> Frank Grillo to be as successful as he can, but Jesus. It's made a billion dollars. Oh my god. That's fucking This is what crazy. I'm talking about. So this is what I mean. And if you watch a trailer for it, it's got high production, but it's just like a fucking, you know, 90s action but, but you know that's the I mean, sort of thing I, I i'm will saying say that basically <laughs> um vin diesel owes his entire career to the international box office so i mean the international box yeah. o- i mean china you don't fuck around with that shit man that, that's i know i know i know I'm, so. i mean i've i've All right. I've, I've at least had my i've had my finger sort of like over the the play button for the wheel man a couple of times this week so you know i'm always up for a little bit of frank grillo <laughs> yeah that's his netflix one, yeah, right that's his netflix movie I, I heard it's actually okay. I, I, you know, the Rotten Tomato score was pretty good, and it's Frank Grillo and this car chases. So it's got two things in it that I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm there for. So, you know, uh, I'll give it a go. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's want to move yeah. on. Do you have any last thoughts on Zulu before we move on to Fahrenheit 451? Uh, Zulu is brilliant and amazing. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. And, I, and, I, and again, like, it, I take it personally if anyone tries to claim that this film is racist or bigoted or anything like that because I don't think you've watched the film properly and you're just simply sort of assuming that any film about a colonial force fighting um, a black indigenous force is automatically racist just by that pure by that pure concept yeah and I'm gonna say um, it is a little bit racist but in the sense that it's ethnocentric not like objectively trying to denigrate a people's but it's an unconscious ideological ethnocentric thing but that and and i'm not trying to say it's morally okay but that that shouldn't detract from i'm saying it's uh, morally wanting okay to watch the movie. i'm saying it's morally okay <laughs> fuck you if you got a problem with zulu i'll fight you fahrenheit 451 the story that takes you into another world another time a provoking exciting love story from the famed novel by ray bradbury 
Fahrenheit 451. The motion picture that presents the darling of the stars, Academy Award winner Julie Christie, in a dual role portraying two women in love with the same man. Here she is as Clarice, the ardent rebel, and as Linda, the wife. Sensual, artless, beautiful. Linda, you're absolutely fantastic. She is indeed fantastic, as she stars with another award-winning favorite of the international cinema. Watch for him. Oscar Banner as Montag. How did it come about? How could someone like you be doing this kind of work? Fahrenheit 451. Co-stars Cyril Cusack, Anton Diffring. What have you got there? This your special book? It's got to be burned by the others and you're under arrest. It's brilliantly directed by Francois Truffaut, one of the leading young talents in world cinema. Calling all citizens. Wanted for murder, Montag. Occupation Fireman. Fahrenheit 451. So my choice for this week was Fahrenheit 451. The French movie Fahrenheit 451. By the French director, famous uh, French New Wave director. I'll I'll give you this. I'll give you this. This fair play, like the entire production was basically done in French. Like they, like it was all produced kind of through. I mean, it was shot in Pinewood in England. Pinewood, right. But there was uh, all the crew, everything was kind of in French. Well, and so Truffaut actually wanted to make this film in um, 1960, right after he finished The 400 Blows. And uh, he had a French actor tied to it. He actually had he wanted Jean Paul, Paul Newman. Formando at one point, didn't he? I don't remember. I he had Paul Newman attached to it at one point. They were going to shoot in New York yeah. with Paul Newman starring. Then they had like a French actor and, and they just production delays pushed it back. So it took six years to lie. get it going. I kind of wish Paul Newman was in this because I love me some Paul oh Newman. Oh my God. Like Paul Newman, man. Those eyes just. He would have killed it. Okay. So so here, let's just describe it. It's, it's an adaptation of Ray Bradbury's uh, really famous, well-known sci-fi dystopian novel, Fahrenheit 451, that uh, the tagline is basically that 451 is the temperature at which book pages burn. So in this dystopian future, it's actually a dystopian America in Bradbury's novel, but they don't really specify in the film, but it, it doesn't feels really matter. It feels this, much more British, but there's a lot of it Europeans feels much more British, around, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a kind of like, it's kind of netherworld. Yeah, yeah. Um, and basically books are disallowed because the dystopian community, which everyone refers to each other as cousins, and then you have the family, they are this monolithic um, type of society where you get all of your information through these flat screens on your TV that sort of like um, basically give you mindless entertainment or let's just say amusement, like literally in the literal sense of amusing. Um, so it's uh, like Neil Postman would say, didn't he write that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death? Um, but it's just mindless amusement, uh, housewives pop pills all the time, stimulants and sleeping pills. And you basically have this just blasé type of world that is afraid of books because in their mind, books just cause people to be crazy. They're not real. Um, They're the thoughts of other people. And uh, it follows this main character whose name I forgot right now. How could you forget it? Like literally like everything that's ever said to him, him. they always call him by his name. They're like, Montag. 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 That's right. Montag. Montag. 
yeah, they never refer to him in like the second person pronoun. It's always by his name, Montag. They're like, does Montag feel good about this? Does Montag like this? What do you think of what this is Montag? Montag, <laughs> Montag yeah, what you, is, can't, what is Montag? you can't possibly do that. <laughs> um, so uh, Montag is a fireman, and the firemen uh, do the opposite of what firemen do in our world. Rather than putting out fires, they start fires. They burn books and sometimes houses if the houses are too filled with books. But they go around and they collect books, and then you can arrest families or they question families or whatever. But the idea is that it's a controlled society controlled through mass media and um, a kind of basic consumer culture. And uh, Bradbury, when he wrote the book, when he first wrote it, he wrote it in the 50s, and he wrote it sort of in response to a McCarthy-era United States um, censorship where people were trying to ban certain books or they were actually certain minority groups, as he called them, religious groups – and uh, small uh, governmental organizations were actually talking about banning and maybe even burning books. And then as time went by, he said, yeah, that was partly it. But he said more than anything, really what the story is about is it's about uh, mass media culture and how mass media is deadening our abilities to think critically. And it's just feeding us information through television and things like that. And that people are afraid of books because what books do is they challenge you to think. They challenge who you are. They stimulate emotions. They preserve history. And um, they do all of these various wonderful individual and personal existential things that mass media deadens and stifles by creating a sort of uh, monolithic type of culture. And so that's what the film is about. Uh, It's totally new wave, crazy, bold, weird colors. Vehicles are all funky. They've got like this... It's like a monorail system, but it's a suspended monorail. Yeah. That's kind of that's kind of badass. Is that real? Uh, basically, as far as it I understand, real. it was something that was built by this company in France, essentially as a test for this concept of a suspended monorail. Um, okay. But it was never sort of so they built. I think like a, a like a one and a half kilometer length test version of this and then it was never really sort of implemented or the concept was never really sold on so i think it was eventually dismantled i I don't think it seems that convenient if i'm being honest and i kind of actually (laughs) also think it's a bit of an eyesore because it's like it it takes up a lot of space and i'm i'm left kind of thinking (laughs) what's wrong with just putting the tracks on the ground i feel like you're trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist here did you ever go to disneyland and ride the monorail yeah i rode the monorail uh, didn't you think that it was really cool yeah, and futuristic? I, also, I live in London, man. We got a DLR. It's not like a big deal here. Like we, the, what's a DLR? The DLR. It's the Dockland Light Railway. It's like it sort of like goes over. It's sort of like a train system that's kind of high up that kind of like goes over. And so, you know, oh yeah, oh yeah, like like the L yeah. in Chicago. Yeah, no, it's like the L. Okay. I mean, and you know, there's there's definitely a lot of tube lines and trains that sort of go over things. I mean, it's it's I, I don't know. It just it actually just didn't really seem that convenient to me. I didn't. It, you know, I think there was a time when you know, like the World Fair yeah. and all of that shit was really popular. There was a time when I think the monorail idea was just super futuristic. Yeah, yeah, no. You know, I, I like it represented. Of, I can't think of monorails without thinking of that episode of The Simpsons where that guy convinces them to build a monorail, <laughs> and then it's like, <laughs> but, but like uh, steals all the town's money. Right, 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 right. Oh Jesus! Well, we're talking a lot about the monorail, but it really doesn't factor <laughs> yes, that heavily. Things happen. In, the monorail is actually a very plot. small part of this movie. <laughs> um, but so it is. It is a very a futuristic type of setting and they actually do a lot of filming in um this one estate that's actually like a real housing estate and uh it's very cookie cutter and suburban and so it's a it's like a 
it's like a futuristic warning about mass media consumption, um, uh, a, a sort of um, homogenous existence, uh, a, a life without free thought, a cookie cutter existence in suburbia, and uh, to to try to like warn people about the pitfalls of not being able to to think freely and preserve the great voices of of people from the past the authors but i mean the thing about it is interesting too though is like it does feel like a kind of it it feels so quintessentially like a 1960s idea of the future like it it like if well 1950s it was written in the no 50s. but i mean like in terms of the production design in the movie it looks so oh, much yeah, yeah. like a 1960s oh, yeah. idea of what the future is going to be like um yeah exactly well it, yeah through the prism of like bold fucking colors yeah. and new wave editing and well, i also like it's, it's like this, this sort of like nifty jumpsuits that kind of i always felt were kind of like something yes. the 60s were very into i thought that's what the future was going to be like a jumpsuit and like a funky little helmet and everything yeah it, it's and it's, it's it's also like it's so funny when you think about like how like technologically advanced we've become since that time period and it's, just, it's there's something really quaint and adorable about their tv that you can talk through and how nobody has any cell phones or anything like that but think but so check this out so in the 50s when bradbury was originally writing this story he talked about these flat screen tvs that people would have on their walls that people would be able to talk through that's pretty bold no, prediction I, I'm, and I'm, then I'm this idea bradbury. of like i love bradbury oh no yeah but like and the thing that and I then like the earpieces and like oh, yeah. the, but like and people yeah. walk around with like earpieces yeah. and they're not connecting with each other but you can just like yeah. tune people out and you just connect to your earpiece as you're like walking around. But um, crazy shit. So I mean, have you re- had you read the book? Oh yeah, dude, I loved the book when I was. I mean, we had to have we had to have we had to read it. It must have been like when I was in sixth grade, so I must have been like twelve. See, the thing that I think's really interesting is the, there's there's something really ironic in the fact that. Fahrenheit 451, I think at one point was one of like the the top books that had been banned in schools in the United States. Irony. Which is there's just something so fucking ironic about that. You know, it's like I know. Um but um but no, I mean I've actually I actually I'm a huge fan of the Illustrated Man. That's kind of my favorite Ray Bradbury story. I think I've read Fahrenheit mm-hmm. 451 once. I don't really remember it that well, to be honest. Um I'd actually seen this movie I don't think I'd ever seen it from the beginning. I it was one of those ones mm. that I think like was playing on PBS or something like that and my dad was like, "Oh, I just came across this. You should watch it." And I watched it from about halfway through. So actually, I like think later than halfway through. So, you know the bit where they go to the woman's house and they find all the books and they burn it with and her in it. She refuses to leave. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. where I started from. So I actually oh, thought Jesus. like the whole movie, I thought that was the beginning. I thought the whole movie was going to be about this guy being on the run. So like the point where they get to the end and they're just like, oh, we're the book people. And that's the end of the movie. I was like, wait, what? what? <laughs> this, is not, this, this, this is the end of the movie? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I thought like the thing that I thought about it immediately is that it's a film that you can still feel – some of the richness of the themes from the book coming through it. But I feel like the movie often feels a little bit stiff 
and sort of stayed. Mm. And I, I, I honestly, I don't like the main actor very much. Like, I think, oh, no, he's I terrible. think you could have really done with someone of like the charisma of Paul Newman or something in the, in the center of this. Cause I, I don't know yeah. why he's got, he's not good looking. I don't think he's especially charismatic. And I don't know if maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that he's just supposed to be this kind of unexceptional, uninteresting person in the lead, mm. but it just feels you know, and he's got a bit of an accent, and I just like I'm just kind of like I don't really get why this guy was cast particularly. Um, yeah, so if like a little behind the this the the scenes production gossip was that Truffaut actually spent quite a bit of time journaling about his experience making this film, and it was released in his journal, his French journal uh, on cinema called Cahiers du Cinema. Um, I have no idea if I'm saying that right, but it's C-A-H-I-E-R-S, so French speakers, please correct me, but um, Cahiers du Cinema, and he talked about his trials while doing this film. First of all, this was the biggest budget he'd oh, ever yeah. had. Well, it was, he's filmed... He's, it was an American... It was like Universal's... It was Universal's their first ever European production. And it was his first color yeah. film, first and it was language. filmed in a foreign yeah. country. You know, he's French, but he was filming in England. He barely spoke any English, and he and Werner, whatever the guy's name is that's the lead the lead actor that plays Montag, um, they butted heads throughout the entire production. So Truffaut wasn't really happy with the film when it first came out. And actually, upon like its initial reception, it got like really mixed yeah. reviews. Which is weird because over time, it's actually started to grow on people. Mm. And now people actually consider it in quite high regard, with the caveat being the lead actor and even the lead actress are terrible. Um, but there's a I sort of... Julie Christie, I gotta say. Uh, you didn't mind her so much? A lot of people complain about her. Um, I... I generally like Julie Christie, so maybe that's part of it. Uh, whereas I've never seen... Okay. Oscar Werner and any because like the only thing that I've seen on his um, on his IMDb is um, the spy who came in from the cold and I don't even remember him and the spy who came from the, in from the cold so it's it's okay. he's he's left no impression on me whatsoever. Yeah. Julie Christie, I've liked probably, other things, so I'm like yeah. What was she? What was she? And she was in something. She's big, in Don't Look she, Now, which is interesting because that's by okay. Nicholas Roeg, who is the cinematographer on this film. Oh. Cool. And when was that? Was that before? Oh uh, no, that was after. So that was nineteen seventy one, okay. seventy two. I want to say, but she okay. was in a lot of these kind of British kitchen sink dramas, like uh, Billy Liar or Darling. Then she's in Doctor Zhivago. Oh, that's it, Doctor Zhivago is. And I then she's thinking. also in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And she's okay. in Nashville, so she like was in a whole bunch of Robert Altman films. Um, and then you know she was Oscar nominated uh, a couple of years back for Away from Her. Huh? Oh, crazy! So, I she's been she's 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 been around. Is she still doing her thing? Uh, last film on her IMDb is uh, the company you keep. Um, so that was a little while ago, which was that okay. uh, Robert Redford directed film with Shia LaBeouf in it that I don't think anyone's ever seen. No, I, I don't I'm even not even sure yeah, like so. Shia LaBeouf's ever seen it. <laughs> uh. Um, and except for in that one time when he, well, to be fair, yeah, he did theater. actually sit through all of his, his films and all of his and movies <laughs> live stream. And so I guess he must've seen it then. He must've seen it. Of course he did fall asleep no, a couple actually, of times. So maybe it was... I, I think, I think like the best performance in this film is Cyril Cusack. I think Cyril Cusack's awesome. I, I love him. I like, okay. Which one is he? He's the captain. 
So oh like, yeah, he's great. So like the bit where they get to the woman's house and basically he <laughs> explains all the themes of the film uh, in, in a single scene. And he's like, yes. but he like, and in so many ways it shouldn't work. It's so trite and kind of like, here is the meaning and the theories and the, the themes and everything about this film all summed up in this like extended, you know, six, seven minute talking scene. Uh, where I just explain all the motives of this society and why it, why it happens. I, I, but I think he makes it work, and I don't know what it is. I think there's hmm. a sort of there's a sort of evilness to him, but a kind of like glee at the same time. And I, and actually, <laughs> one of the things that I always think is great whenever you have an evil character or a villain is that you have someone who ultimately believes that they are justified in everything that they do, and I think that that hmm. works so well for him. He's not evil because he wants to be evil he ultimately believes he's justified in everything he's doing and i think that's the best kind of villain um and yeah it's it's i i kind of there was definitely that little part of me that what he's talking about all these philosophers who say they have the answer to everything and then disagree Uh with other philosophers who they say they have the answer to everything and i was just like (laughs) this is he's talking about austin right now uh my blood started (laughs) boiling i was like you you neophyte I'm, no, um, I, I think I think this is this is interesting because you say he's been trying. He was trying to make this since 1960. I mean, this has all of yeah. the hallmarks of the passion project in it, which is that you know when directors mm. have a passion project, a lot of times it's like they can't get enough distance from it to be able to kind of see its its the flaws in what they're doing, and mm. and I I think that this I mean I I think this film is really let down by its lead. I don't mind Julie Chris. I don't think she's amazing. I, I find the choice to have her play two different characters very odd. I, I don't really see what the film gained from that. But Yeah, so I think the reason that they have her play two characters that are supposed to be diametrically opposed. They're supposed to be these two completely different characters. One, the housewife, Linda, right? Yeah. Um, who is completely consumed by this mass media brainwashing culture she takes her pills she actually tries to kill herself at one point and then that's just like such a normal thing that the scrub team yeah. comes in and cleans and her up like and gets her going really again and she's fine again i liked those elements yeah. and again i actually i also i really liked the weird tv show which is like yes but we can't possibly have him sit there no 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 that's that's for that's for tom's <laughs> wife and, and maybe we could sit them on the other side what do you think linda <laughs> yeah and then the creepy dude with the glasses like just stares like, down yeah, the barrel of the camera it on him and he just <laughs> stares and it's like and i again like there's something really interesting in that because you can apply that in a lot of ways to our modern idea of how so much of our media seems to be about appealing to our own vanity um, that's a hundred percent. And I and I and I thought that that's it. That was interesting in this idea of like you can see a certain element of social media in that. This idea that she gets yes. to be the cousin on this show and be part of she participates. She's she participating. participating, and therefore yeah. she feels special and like she's important. And you know, and yeah. again, and it's There's it's a- interesting how when. Um, Montag reads um, that passage. I can't, what, what book was it? He reads a passage from again. Wait, where at? Uh, Which when part? she's there, there's oh, the party's when... going on with his. Oh God, uh, I don't. I, can't I don't remember. know. It's the book that. It's the book that. Yeah, but I can't it, remember it, what he it is. reads what, something yeah. and it, it gets one of the women getting feels, and it's like this feeling, of, and it's this idea of like you're not supposed to create emotion in people because it it's it's right. bad, it's dangerous because it creates conflicting ideas. Whereas like the ideas, these women should all be pulling together in the same direction, which is they all want to be 
cousins or whatever that is called of being part of the sort of inner group and they all want to be on this show and that's and that's what's the important thing is being kind of famous and part of like the in crowd um and then having emotions and conflicting ideas and you know your own thoughts is all bad so the fact that he's yeah he's used this book to stir up this emotion in her is is wrong yeah, and she even says it as she's walking out the door. She says, like, I forgot that I felt this way or that I yeah. could feel this way. And so there is something about the the deadening nature or the deadening tendencies of this mass media. And and there's a philosopher named Bernard Stiegler who writes a lot about uh, – uh, about mass media one of the things that he talks about now he's writing in this with this theory he wrote a book called techniques in time i think he's writing in like the 80s and 90s um it's translated into english more recently but talking about television as being like this sort of one-way information yeah. uh distributor you know and that you're a passive recipient and that there's something interesting about that but what he misses and this is something that a guy named jonathan crary actually criticizes him on is he misses that actually today what we get is we have a two-way connection and this is actually where this this film and where the bradbury story actually kind of is almost way ahead of its time it's not just being a passive recipient but it's making you feel like you're actually participating in this this uh game of mass media um, now less so because in social media you actually you are involved because you like things and you share things and you comment on things and then you're kind of reciprocating information. But there is something interesting in this sort of uh, this idea, this facade of this two-way connection that you have with the people behind the television screens and that that is what connects you in sociality when in reality what's happening is, is that everyone is being deadened and brought to a sort of common denominator. Because you can't feel. Because if you feel, you're going to drudge up those those individual particular things that are going to make you be like a rebel. That's going to make you rebel. And and from the beginning, Montag is kind of rebellious. You know, like when his wife Linda gets all excited that she's part of this reality show. When they look at her and they're like, "What do you think, Linda?" He says, "Oh, what? Like they didn't just choose a generic name, and there aren't like two hundred thousand other Lindas or something like that that they're talking to." And she's like, "She's like, well, you didn't have to say that. You know, even if it is true, you didn't have to say that." And she blocks him out, and she puts her earbuds in, and she pops a pill, and she starts watching more TV or whatever it is. So again, she she needs her addictions. She has to cope, and she has to dope in order to maintain the sort of illusion of happiness rather than drudging up the raw stanky stuff. Well, I suppose Montag, too, the thing about him is that even when the captain's like, well, Montag, you're up for a promotion. Isn't that great, Montag? Montag, you shall soon be, you know, my (laughs) position. Montag, you know. I I don't... um, he never seems that enthusiastic. He never seems that he, – he never seems to be – even from the beginning, he doesn't seem to be taking joy in his work. There's clearly some sense that something is missing. I just think, again, that this film really doesn't do a great job of really selling his personal journey very much because I just don't think he mm. comes off like a very dynamic character. Um, yeah, no, he's not good. No. He's not good. And, and that's why I think the film is more successful at the con- conceptual level. Then maybe at yeah. the narrative. No, and I, and I think that's you know? what's interesting. I liked a lot of the themes that came out of it. Um, I'm not sure I think it's that great a film, though. I, I think that there's a lot of themes, mm. really interesting themes that are very much a really good holdover from the book. And I think that mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of interesting visual tricks and kind of interesting visual elements to the film. Um, which, you know, I, I'm not surprising it's, you know, a Truffaut film, but I, I, I don't feel like it ever comes together to me into something where I feel like this piece works in and of itself. I, I, I think, and, and it was interesting cause I was kind of wondering like how, 
would a modern version of Fahrenheit 451 work? Because could we believe in this idea of a future where yeah. uh, the printed word still matters? Well, they're making yeah, one. Yeah, but they've been, they've been making one for like 20 years now. No, 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 no. Michael Shannon and Michael B. Jordan produced by HBO Films. They have started As it actually started production. They have started. I've seen a screenshot okay, from all right, it. They have all started right. principal Who's photography. It? It's uh, I don't know. I it's uh, I, I didn't recognize the name, um, but it's Michael B. Jordan is going to be playing Montag, and Michael Shannon is playing the captain, and uh, it will probably be out in the next year because it's I, it's probably wrapped up now. Shooting. I mean, I, I could. I think they started. I think they started this summer. I could. I can so. get on board with uh, with uh, Michael B. Jordan. Ah, it's the dude who did Ninety Nine Homes. Oh, I, I, I never also saw did it. like uh, Chop Shop and uh, Man Push Cart. Um, he's kind of like a big indie dude, um, but it's you know it's he's definitely kind of like a very politically he, he ha, you know there's a lot of sort of political meaning in the the films he makes you know so I he's and, actually and you know a what? good choice this, I think he's yeah. I think he'd do a good job. And this film is sort of perfect fodder for the contemporary issue with fake news and um, YouTube comments and the sort of serialization of information that gets disseminated through social media. So it'll be really interesting to see a sort of more fresh take on a story that is kind of a timeless narrative. It's really about fighting against uh, a totalitarian, repressive society. And it's interesting, a lot of people view this film as sort of being anti-state and actually Bradbury says that really if you pay attention the people who are most complicit it's not the state it's the people themselves and so Bradbury was actually trying to be like a good liberal would I guess to try to say that there's individual freedom and that we have the power to make sure that we continue to learn and seek and grow as individuals. Well the interesting thing that I'd say I really took out of it and what really resonated to me in the modern era was this idea of um uh, trying to funnel all information and arg- and and um, information into into one area. You're either, you know, a- and trying to destroy mm. anything that doesn't agree with your argument. You know, it's like you mm. you have to uh, cleanse everything. You have to cleanse the world of everything that doesn't sort of agree with you. And I mean, and and because right. that's I think a, a really interesting debate that we've been having within society over the last couple of years, which is really the idea of um, the freedom of for people to be able to say what they want, say what they think, and and not necessarily always have it be speech that you like, you know. Um, and I yeah, there's there's a bit in the film where the captain holds up Mein Kampf, yeah. and he uh, and he does it on purpose, and I can't remember the comment that he makes, but he says something like, you know. All of these books are dangerous, mm. like, and and none of them deserve to be read. And then he like holds up Mein Kampf, and he's like, especially he kind of he yeah. doesn't say this, but he's basically saying like, haha, wink, wink, nod, nod. These are the type of things that we need to silence. But obviously, Bradbury and Truffaut are kind of insinuating that even a book like Mein Kampf probably we shouldn't just well, burn. I, it. I, we shouldn't just destroy. My it. feeling has always been that book burning is the thing the Nazis did, and you don't really want to be, you know look into the nazis as a as 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 a sign of the things you're doing i mean my feeling is something (laughs) that's a that's a good litmus test my feeling is something like mein kampf (laughs) is something that we we need to preserve because we need to understand it right it's like 
Um, and, and I think that's that's the thing is that um, agreeing with free speech isn't necessarily about condoning that speech. And, you know, I mean, I think one of the greatest quotes ever, and I never remember who said it, was, um, you know, I don't agree with what you say, but I defend the death your right to say it. And I, I you know, that's that's always been very much my personal mantra is that I would rather that um, we engage with um, wrong and evil speech on in the world of ideas and conversation than to simply say, I don't like what you're saying, so I want to silence you. So, you know, I mean, I've always been that person who says, yeah, fucking let Milo Ianopoulos have his, you know, go fucking talk to people on campuses or any of that shit. You know, I've, I've, you know, I think he's an asshole, but at the same time, I will defend his right to say whatever he wants. Um, doesn't mean that I don't think he should be argued against till, you know, you blew in the face, but... I think every human being has their right to free speech. Um, doesn't necessarily mean I have to agree with it. See, I think when you punch somebody, that is expression. So that is free expression. So punching a Nazi is okay because well, uh, that's my free expression. When they're going to try and talk and I'm going to punch them. They have their freedom of expression, but the consequence is that my fist is going to meet your face because that's my freedom and, and, of expression. And, 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 then, and then your freedom of expression is to stand up and fight me to back. And those books and say, you know, well, it's, 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 you know, these books are troublesome and I feel like I need to get rid of them. And then my freedom of expression is to say that you're a fucking idiot. Give me those books, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I I get what you're saying, and I think that this film uh, in the story it is so important because this is this is a, a a very inflammatory issue right now where people are debating what are these limits. You know, do we let people who have ideas that we find disgusting neo Nazis do we give them a platform to disseminate their information? If that's harmful, some people would say you've got to give them a platform and then we can reason and debate with them. Some people say by giving them a platform, you're condoning it and you're actually empowering them. And so the fact that we can have these types of discussions and we don't need to get into where we stand on this sort of thing because these are fucking tough situations and and tough issues to work through. But that's one of the things that's so amazing about this text in this film because the themes are relevant and will be relevant until the sun burns us up in heat death in, uh, you know, however many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years and then billions of years from now when the universe is destroyed. Like, as long as there are humans, this shit's well, going to keep going that's almost up. the depressing thing is that uh, the media and the form of information change, but uh, the actual uh, people and humanity don't. Yeah, you almost wonder why. Yeah. I know. you yeah, I'd like to think that we could change ourselves and modify ourselves in such a way that we would overcome these limitations, but even though I don't necessarily believe in an intrinsic human nature, there does seem to be something about culture reproducing these tendencies, so I don't know. I do agree with you. The film isn't – it isn't brilliant. I mean we couldn't talk about two different films stylistically yeah. than this like – slow sweeping panoramic landscape in south africa and then like this really like almost claustrophobic quick cut sometimes he uses this weird split screen actually one time only he used the weird split screen uh, he's using weird cuts um kind of a, a crazy sound uh soundtrack um the two very different films but i actually really enjoyed watching this film again after having not seen it for about 15 years I thought I was going to be more disappointed with it than I was. And maybe it's simply because of where I am conceptually 
now as someone who has studied more philosophy and as someone who enjoys this type of filmmaking, I enjoyed it so much. I think um, I think it yeah. had portions where it really came alive to me, but I think at times was really weighed down by some of its limitations and I, you know some of those being the writing and the acting um yeah 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 i can see that um you know and i and i it's it's one of those things that you know i i i think i think in a lot of ways i i you know i i do just think this movie would have been really improved by two better Leads like I I don't really want to lay that on Julie Christie quite as much because I do think she's a good actress I I think she's also hampered by the fact that she's doing this weird thing where she's playing two characters that I don't actually think conceptually makes much sense um yeah and they're not stark no. enough in their difference that's the one they don't thing. feel and, and like that's... two versions of the same character they don't feel like like two pol- they don't feel like it, it doesn't feel like it's making some sort of conceptual point by doing that it feels odd it's yeah yeah it's trying it, it just it doesn't quite I mean. Th- I read a review actually that said that uh, unfortunately the only difference between the two characters is their haircut. And while I don't think that's entirely true, I can see why someone would think that. But I do think that 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 Truffaut didn't do a good enough job, or that Julie Christie didn't do a good enough job of distinguishing between these two different types yeah. of persons. One who's supposed to be dead, lifeless, monotonous, um, basically just sedated and uh, a zombie kind of clone and then the other person is supposed to be different you know who's supposed to have this spark of life in her who who sees the spark of life in montag and then that spark of life grows and spreads there's a way to make that ignite more and it didn't quite well, they didn't quite the show interesting it. thing is that julie christie was originally cast just as linda and they wanted to for clarice they wanted to cast either gene seberg or jane fonda which to me makes a lot more sense. And the interesting thing is they basically give hmm. Julie Christie a wig that's essentially a kind of Jane Seberg. Looks like Jane Fonda. Well, actually, it's a kind of Jane Seberg kind of knockoff wig because it's like her oh, and okay. Breathless with the short hair, you know. Oh, okay. Um, I was thinking or, or, she kind of looks like Jane Fonda yeah. too. But I, I, and I think either of those actresses would have made a lot more, ch- uh, you know, because you take, say, you take, um, you take Linda, she's kind of, British, withdrawn, kind of very um, stoic. And then you you have someone, you know, like a Gene Seberg, Jane Fonda, make her American, a bit more peppy. I mean, to me, that makes more mm. sense. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think... And I don't actually think... I actually think weirdly out of the two, I think Julie Christie's actually better at Clarice than she is at Linda. I find Linda a very tedious character and doesn't help the fact that <laughs> her... That, that she's acting across from, you know fucking oscar werner wood, is not wood, good wood, in any way so wood with eyes wood with eyes and a not particularly interesting face i, I don't know I, I he was really just not very good and i just i really <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what the fuck was going through their heads when they cast him you know yeah i, I think Truffaut uh would have yeah, agreed with so you. i mean it's uh, yeah it's it's one of those ones where you know I, I I didn't think it was bad. I just kind of, it's just not um, it's not great. It's mediocre, is what it is. It's it's a film that you can see what it was trying to do, um. But I I think I think there's something going on here where Truffaut's either too enamored with the source material or he's too deep into his own vision, and he can't see mm. the forest for the trees. And I think it's quite surprisingly bland at times. It feels very flat and un 
unemotional. And I think like, and I think actually somebody like Michael B. Jordan, who to me, I think is, is very good at being a kind of withdrawn, but empathetic character. I think, I think he makes a lot of sense to me as Montag. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I think that, that he's fantastic. And I think Michael Shannon is, is a God amongst men. So I think that, uh, the, the, the pieces seem to be there. And I looked a bit at like the supporting cast as well, and they all are pretty legit. So, as long as I mean the, the the concepts and the themes are interesting, the political and cultural climate is is perfect for this type of story. I mean, and HBO always does legit shit. So hopefully they can make a winner. Yeah, um, and I think uh, with that we can go to the final score. Inevitable, Inevitable conclusion. conclusion. <sighs> okay, so I thought I thought maybe I thought maybe you were gonna be like, dude, I was really surprised. I thought I was gonna hate this, and I I actually really loved it. I was hoping. I thought I had like a ten percent chance of that happening. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so okay, so uh, Austin, so we're going to find a score. So why don't you tell us what uh, you gave Zulu for directing? A one. <laughs> Fuck off. I gave you a one across the board. Fuck off. You all you get are Fuck ones. Off. <laughs> All right, you, you get ones, and now it's your turn. You get one one chance to talk me. You out realize, of it. you realize, if you um, give me ones across the board, I just give you ones across the board, and then you still lose. Oh yeah, <laughs> good point. Um, uh, yeah. So for directing, I'm gonna go nine, and the reason is because I think first of all, I I got a little annoyed with the battle sequences. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I thought we didn't that, actually talk about this, but this film is really bad for, like, 1960s action choreography, where it's very clearly it's they're, not actually, they're not actually stabbing anybody. It's very... It's terrible choreography. So I'm going to take off those points in acting, um, but uh, for directing, I mean, the landscape is beautiful, the the camera work is exquisite, um, I think it's it's a really well-directed when I, I've I've always said too that I think one of the things we've lost a lot as a in sort of modern filmmaking is the ability to really give this sense of scale and wonder to things. And yeah. Zulu is a film that understands scale. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay, so I'm actually going to pleasantly surprise you and give directing a nine um, because yes. Uh, I think visually it's very solid. I, you know, but I, I also like a lot of the weird tricks Truffaut puts in there. I mean, I, I, you know, you know me, I, I like very hyper stylized things and I, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, on a visual level, I think it's very impeccably put together. Like I have no real criticisms for it. Um, there, I mean, um, I mean, my, I, I would probably quibble with him a bit on say things like the performances, but again, you know, I can get into that on acting. (laughs) Yeah. So okay. Yeah, so what do you what do you give in acting? Okay. So for acting, I'm gonna give it a seven, and I think Michael Caine was really good. I think what's the main guy's name? Uh, main guy's name is Stanley Baker. I think he's who fantastic. is also who also produced the film. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think he's fantastic. So the two of them are stellar. Uh, the bit part players are pretty weak. Um, so, you know, a lot of like just the standard soldier types, they're, they're kind of, eh, you know, they're above average, but, um, then it would have been only like an eight at that point. Cause you know, they're not, you know, it doesn't really detract, but those fucking battle sequences, man, like you got to stick the fucking sword 
in them or you gotta like if you get shot if you get shot on your left shoulder you don't like pirouette to your right and like jump in the air like power rangers i have to say like the other thing too that's really (laughs) bad is when they like they like stab the person and then the person tries to react to it and they try and make it look like it's got it but of course their back is to the camera so that you so so that they can hide it and it's just yeah and i mean yeah the worst is they stab somebody and then they're on the ground and they clearly just like gutted them. Yeah. And then they like flip them over and their stomach has no blood, no wounds whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think the thing is you got to remember too that this came out at a time period where this was also – this would have played in theaters where people would have expected their kids would have gone to it. And it would have been expected that, you know, whole families could go to it. It wouldn't have been like uh, – yeah. you know, so I, I don't think – don't think we were at a time of intense violence and gore. This is kind of pre-Bonnie and Clyde, so – yeah, this it's tough to talk about violence in films post Tarantino, <laughs> and you know, like you have certain expectations yeah. about what you're supposed to see. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, I actually think that's one of the interesting things about Tarantino is I think his his because his films are often couched around these sort of old school Hollywood genres. Is I actually think there's a critique of the way Hollywood has portrayed violence in the past. Um, that's I mean, I always think there's very a lot of interesting degrees to Tarantino's violence that I think people dismiss too quickly, but. That's a discussion mm. for another time. Uh, so I gave acting – this is going to surprise you. I actually gave acting an eight. Uh, oh, wow. Because okay. I really like Stroke Cusack. That's, that's, that's pretty much <laughs> it. Like I, I didn't mind, I didn't mind yeah. Julie Christie. Like she didn't bother me at all. Like I was even surprised a little bit when you said that she, she was awful. Uh, or that people thought she was bad. Uh, yeah, people yeah, thought yeah. she was awful. I didn't necessarily think so. I thought she was – I think she's saddled with a kind of dumb thing in the idea that they've cast her in these two roles. I don't really think that's her fault. Um, I really didn't like the main guy. And I'm kind of at this moment wondering why I even gave you eight because I really didn't like him at all. Too late. But I do like Cyril Cusack a lot. So, I mean, you can basically thank him for that, for that score. Thank you, Cyril. So what's, uh, what, what, what have you got on the writing? Um, on the writing, I'm going to give it a 9. And the only reason I wouldn't give it a 10 is because I think that they could have done a little bit of a better job fleshing out the humanity of the Zulu warriors. Just a little bit. A little bit. Now, I don't know how they would have done that. But again, I was thinking about Captain Phillips and the way that Captain Phillips was able to give the Somali pirates uh, a lot of depth. Um, that's the only no. thing. Other th- other than that, I mean, it's yeah. That's the only. And I, thing I, I take say. that on board definitely because um, you know it, it is that thing. Like in theory, you could have made a movie that was equal parts the Zulu perspective, equal parts the British perspective. Um, and I think that would have made a very interesting movie. Um, yeah. I you know, I just don't think you could have made that film in 1964. Um, yeah. No. Probably not. Um, so for writing, uh, I was a bit harsh. I gave this a seven because. Um, I think the really interesting elements of this film are things that come out of it being an adaptation of the book. And I actually think the points where the film has to knit together uh, an actual film screenplay are quite tedious. Like I I think they're, Mm. I I think a lot of the interactions are really, really flat and boring. Um, And I think like their dialogue is very on the nose. And again, the person who makes that come alive to me is Cyril Cusack. But for the most part, it, a lot of the dialogue scenes feel very, very flat and sort of functional. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think it helped that Truffaut did not speak English particularly as a, a you know, a, you know, that well. No. Um, 
So, I mean, it's not surprising. Actually, the funny thing is Truffaut has, I did read that Truffaut said he prefers the French dubbed version to the English version. He should have just made the fucking film yeah, in French, man. Um, so production. A uh, 10. 10. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's beautiful. Um, and then I think because I read a little bit about, uh, how they filmed on location in South Africa, how they used actual Zulu people. Um, I, I just think it was, you know, for, for a film made in that time era. I mean, I think they did a really great job. Uh, the locations are wonderful. The sets are for what they are. They're actually quite good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, across the board production. I gave you a nine. Um, cause okay. I, you know, I kind of dug the old fashioned retro kind of idea of the future. You know, it was, it was quite fun. Yeah. Um, how cool is that fire yeah. truck, man? And I, I also really liked, um, I really liked, uh, all the kind of the way that they did with the, everything they did with the book burning and the way that they, I liked that there was a kind of mixture of modern and old as well. Like, I think it could have just been all classics, but is it, uh, yeah, I like how there's like, like uh, the big yeah. sequence, uh, there's a big sequence of just you watching all of these pages of this Salvador Dali book sort of floating by. I love that. You know? yeah. And so, you know, I, I really liked the way that they had tried to create this variety of voices and ideas with the, the books that they showed. Um, in, in Yeah, and one of the things we didn't talk about that's really interesting is the opening scene when they gather the books, they set it up on this altar yeah. almost out in the middle of public. And it's a very sort of almost ritualistic yeah. sacrifice. Um, and there's a book by philosopher Michel Foucault called Discipline and Punish where he talks about the sort of difference between like public torture uh, in like the 1700s or 1600s and how that switches more towards like modes of discipline and imprisonment and carceral systems uh, kind of in the 18th century um, and onwards. And uh, and one of the things that's super interesting is that this this public spectacle is kind of like that sort of more archaic version of punishing in the city square where everybody can see it and everybody's forced to watch and take part in this ritual sacrifice. Well, and, so I thought that was kind of cool. And do you cool. think there's like a deliberate attempt to kind of call back to say the SS with say like the black uniforms and like the um, this this the I because of course you know mm. the Nazis were notorious for burning books so you know do you think there right. is an element where they're trying to bring some sort of uh, have some sort of par- visual mm. parallel with that? Yeah, I'm sure, and maybe I mean maybe that's why they cast the Werner dude because he's Austrian and he sounds yeah. like German. I, I mean, and he kind of looks like an Aryan yeah. guy. And they, all the guys do. They all kind of blonde-haired, tall, blue-eyed. I think it's know? very, you know, I, I, it makes I a know. lot of sense to me that there's a, a kind of uh, a theme of kind of Nazi Germany to some extent in this. But, I mean, I think I think it's something that's become a bit played out, the sort of vague fascist imagery that's kind of used as sort of right. dystopia. But, I mean, I, I don't think it feels yeah. played out here. You know, I, I think because of the time period it's coming out of, I think it feels more modern than, um, yeah. you know, listen and to I think because Truffaut's and Truffaut's just got kind of a cool yeah? style. Oh, definitely. So I think, I think oh, the suits match yeah. with I mean, the red fire engine. I say like and, something and too, like again, like a touch that again just feels very Truffaut to me um, is the whole thing of having the the uh, having the opening credits spoken because of the fact like that. that you know he's essentially dealing with a world of illiterate people so no yeah words. so the idea yeah. of it being broadcast through these radio signals and it the credits being spoken i think it's a really cool little stylistic touch that is which clever. again is the reason i yeah. gave it a nine for directing um <laughs> yeah. so 
Now we are on to <laughs> the big one. What does it say about the country of origin? I uh, got to give you a, a one, one, brother. I just didn't see. There was no relevance, no relevance whatsoever. whatsoever. None at Nothing. all. Nothing. No, I mean, you have to give it a 10. Um, because this is not only is this a story about a very important military battle or success, but beyond that, it does it from a position of a, a very particular sort of um, British take on the story. So it is it is an historical artifact, and at the same time, it's also a little bit of a piece of British ideology and propaganda at the same time. So you got to give it a 10. Um, I, I think if you were going to show, like, if you were going to say, hey, we're going to show you 20 films to talk about Great Britain, you know, I feel like this would be one of the ones that you would probably well, show. Well, I think, I think the interesting thing is it, it is able to touch on British colonialism without, I think, excusing it or... Um, at the, or galvanize or glorifying it. It, it kind of sits in yep. the middle, which I think is, is interesting yeah. because it very much becomes about the men rather than about the political machinations of it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things that was really nice. Actually, it was, it was a, they tried their best to make a, a human take yeah. on British soldiers. You know, they weren't just these killing machines that you get a lot of times. These were people that they have hardships. They've never killed somebody before. I'm a fucking engineer. I'm yeah. not a soldier. I don't want to. Which is, kill of course, the truth. And... The truth is, an awful lot of people join the military because, like, it's a job. You know, it, it affords yeah. them opportunities. I mean, my my grandfather was able to um, get out from being on a you know, a, a shitty cotton farm in Texas, um, because he joined the army. It's, it's the, right. it's, it's been a lot of people. It, it, it's their way out of things. Exactly. Um, yeah. so <laughs> I give you a five. Cause okay. I mean, like, that's probably, that's probably kind of like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I gave you, you a five in salt? the sense that it's Truffaut <laughs> and it's, I, because I wouldn't even think of this film as a French New Wave film, to be honest. So it's like it, it's hard even for me to give it that. But I'm like at this point, I'm, I know the New Wave. The New Wave like technically stopped at like 63 yeah, or 64. I mean, it doesn't really so. have a lot of the hallmarks of a New Wave film. So I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel like a New Wave film. It's it's like yeah. I mean, if you compare this like the 400 Blows or you know Don't Shoot the Pianist, it's it's you know it, again it feels like you know you can feel that Truffaut has a higher budget. You you know in this one it's right yeah and you almost can see maybe a little bit of uh, a little bit of him suffering in his integrity because he had I think some budget. of the rawness is gone I really do like I think like when you watch say something like the 400 blows or you know shoot the pianist or something is there, I, I feel like it there's a rawness to those films um th there's just an mm. energy and a vitality that feels really gone in this movie right um yeah. So yeah. So I gave you five. Um, anything you want to uh, argue against? Nah, man. I uh, I'm ready to accept my fate. Okay. So uh, your score was 38, which uh, brings your entire total to 213. To 113. 213. 213. Mm -hmm. All right. And where are you at? Uh. Well, what's my cumulative score? 45. 45. Okay. So 220. All right, so 220, plus you get the five bonus, so Well, I suspended the five bonus because I was killing you too much, so you know, know. it doesn't really yeah. matter at, at this, this point, point. I beat you by I beat yeah. you by seven points. 
<laughs> All right. So what does this so mean? This means you got to watch three three Medea movies. Okay. Well, I'm gonna do at least one seasonal film for sure. And so, is there a Halloween? There's one a Halloween one. There's there's two Halloweens because there's Boo, a Medea Christmas, and there's Boo Two, a Medea Christmas. So no, Medea Halloween. Medea oh, Halloween. Medea Halloween. Oh, I was like, oh, it's but like there a, is also I it was like a, a Nightmare Christmas Before Christmas as well. Yeah, I'm gonna watch the Medea Christmas. I'll watch Boo, the Medea Halloween, and then I'll watch like whatever's the one that's the most famous. Yeah. Of the standard. Well, it was. Standard it was Medeas. like I I was tempted to just at one point it was just going to be Tyler Perry movies, and so it could have been something like I don't know, um, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor or something awful like that. But like one of his kind of like um, Christian morals movies. But then I decided no 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 we need we need. Tyler Perry in a wig and a fat suit. That's what we really need. <laughs> so, uh, in the meantime, uh, we are going to... Because, obviously, we ended up taking a two-week hiatus from the podcast, uh, we are unfortunately going to have a late Halloween special, which is going to be... That's right. Halloween is Tuesday, Tuesday right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we can get one out, like, maybe Thursday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, that's that's what I'm thinking. It'll be, like, two days late for Halloween. Okay. But, um, that's so, okay. um, we are each, again, it's a double bill. We're each picking a Halloween film. Uh, yeah. So, uh, the film that I am unleashing is a film that, actually, I watched uh, two weeks ago and was kind of like, fuck it, I'd like to talk about this film because it's got a lot of interesting themes, a lot of interesting ideas, and, you know, I, I don't think it's the credit it's due in terms of the, the great sort of modern horror classics, and... That film is the film Candyman, based off the Clive Barker short story. You don't feel like it gets love, huh? I don't feel like it gets enough love, man. Huh. Well, you're going to like my choice then, because similar in that I'm going to go with Scream. Scream. Okay. Yeah. I I haven't seen Scream since I probably had a crush on Nev Campbell in, like, what, 1996? Something like that. So we'll go with Scream and Candyman. See, it's interesting because Scream is a film that at one point in my life I saw like a shitload. But, and I think I saw like the edited for TV version a lot because I think they always played it on like Fox all the time, like around Halloween time. So I'm like, but I don't think I've seen it for a good six seven years so i'm 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 really interested it actually like scream's an interesting one too because basically scream basically in my opinion i think a lot of other people's opinions as well basically ruined horror for about 10 years because every <laughs> film was then tried yeah. to be scream because it was so popular it's, it's really clever you know to my recollection yeah. scream was really good so i'm i'm really i'm i'm intrigued to go back and have a look at it and um listen i'm not gonna lie I'm actually terrified of Candyman. Candyman. I'm fucking crazy ass movie. Candyman scares the shit out of me. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And that's one of those ones that I watched as a kid. And I was like, I can't I also do think this. That is a film so. that sticks the landing better than almost any horror film. Like there is like that film. Like, cause I just think that's the hard part with horrors. How do you end it? And it's like, there's like, you know, even say something like a nightmare on Elm street, I think has a dumb ending. Like, I think there's a lot of horror films that have a dumb ending cause they need, some kind of scare or they need something it doesn't feel like it's really it it, it doesn't feel like it, it often feels like a cop-out in order to um you know it, you know in order to like allow the good guys to win and then they have the oh but did they win thing and i mean like even like a film like <laughs> i love i love it follows i i don't particularly like the ending of it follows that much you know so i mean 
Hmm. To me, Candyman is just about one of the most perfect, flawless endings that a horror film has. I don't even remember. I, I'll find out. I can't even remember. I just remember being fucking terrified. Yeah. Well, let's. Okay. Uh, so next week we will be back for our late horror, late Halloween special with Candyman and Scream. So in the meantime, uh, check out our website, idigthismovie.com. Um, I am going to try and sort of start getting us do more with our social media side of things because we have not been good about that. So, you know, try and no. up up that a bit. I mean, considering I'm working for a radio station at the moment, I should be sort of, I, you know, I'm in charge of their social media, then I should probably be like applying <laughs> some of that to my own shit. Um, so yeah, so, uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll sort of see some improvements in that. But, um, anyway, in the meantime, Austin, anything, uh, people should check out anything, you know, hit, hit, hit you up on Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I'm always down for a discussion. And if you know how to pronounce Kahedu Cinema, please let me know. Okay. And uh, yeah, so we will see you next week for Candyman and Scream.